I was telling Mick this morning when I first came in that, you know, I, I've preached in my life probably close to a hundred sermons now. And I'm generally past the point of being nervous. But something about taking last week off, I woke up this morning with jitters like it was the first time I'd ever preached before. So if uh, I get a case of uh, cotton mouth or something like that, just bear with me. I'm not sure why that is. John 6, and maybe this is why I was a little bit nervous this morning. John 6, in my spiritual formation, my personal spiritual formation, has probably been the most important passage of Scripture for me. I've shared with you bits and pieces of my spiritual life before I became a pastor. But essentially, the way that I viewed my walk of faith for a great many years went something like this. Jesus Christ died on the cross for me 2,000 years ago. I need to get myself to a point where I can understand that significantly well enough to be able to make a, have a quote-unquote moment of decision. After having that moment of decision, though, the way that I grow in the faith is to learn more about God by reading the Bible. And if I learn more about God by reading the Bible, then I will automatically change and become the kind of person that God would have me to be. But it didn't work. It didn't happen that way. Instead, what ended up happening was I became a great student of the Bible. I knew more of the Bible than probably most people. I loved God's Word, but nothing was changing inside of me. I was the same person. Now, I knew, I knew that God promised the Holy Spirit at baptism. Well, Peter promised it, and we take it as the Word of God. And I knew that in some way I had the power of the Holy Spirit living in me, but I couldn't seem to unlock that power. I couldn't realize it, experience it, have it released in my own life so that the sins that I was struggling with could be crushed, overturned, so that I could become the kind of person that Christ would have me be. And so as I began to understand what my problem was, John 6 played a central role in recognizing where I had seen the faith incorrectly. The Christian faith is not a self-improvement plan. The Christian faith is not a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps plan. The Christian faith is you can't do it by yourself. The same faith you brought with you to the time that you finally decided you were going to start following him is a faith that has to be refreshed, restored, and renewed. And God has given us a means for that grace. And we read about it today in John 6. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You see, the way I had been approaching the faith was that Christ did something for me and now I need to get busy doing what I'm supposed to do for him. But what I realized as I began to read John 6 is that even after baptism, even after I had entered in the life of faith, and even after the fact, even as a result of the fact that I loved God, I still needed to be fed. 
At that point, I was receiving the Lord's Supper every week, but I was approaching it from the perspective of I'm doing this in obedience rather than I'm receiving something. And as I began to see that the Lord's Supper is not principally a thing that we do in order to be obedient, but it's something that we come to in order to receive God's grace in a very, very intimate, intimate way, my perspective of faith began to change. And I began to see it isn't a matter of me getting, it to, getting to a point where I can do better without the grace of God. It was instead a matter of, in order to receive life, I have to come to where Christ has promised to give life. And that place is his table, his supper. There are other places as well. Perhaps you've referred to them, you've heard them referred to as the means of grace. This certainly is not the only place that we come to approach God's grace. He gives us grace as we read the Bible. He infuses us with knowledge and lets us know who he is. He gives us grace as we pray and we come into contact with him in a very spiritual way, in a very real way. He gives us grace through worship as we grow with one another as a body of believers. But for some reason, and I haven't been able to figure this out entirely, At some point, we Protestants started looking at the Lord's Supper as separated from that as a command rather than a grace. You know, several years ago, perhaps some of you have heard of her, Flannery O'Connor, are any of you familiar with her? She was a a, a wonderful writer in the uh, the late mid-20th century. One time she was speaking with a friend about the sacraments, about the Lord's Supper, And her friend asked her her views on it in regards to how we should approach it, how we should receive it. And her response to me was telling. She said, if it's just a symbol and that's it, if it's just barely something that we're supposed to do to remember something that Christ did 2,000 years ago, ago, then to heck with it. And I agree with that. What good is a bare symbol in the Christian life? None. I don't know about you, but I don't need symbols in my life. I need realities. I need living realities. I need the Holy Spirit creating something new in me through the power of Jesus Christ, something I can't do for myself. And if all I'm doing is drinking bread and grape juice, that's really not getting it done. And so as I look back on the perspective I had, say, five, ten years ago, I don't begrudge it. I'm grateful for what I had, but I see it as lacking so much of what Christ promises through his supper to us. It is more than just symbol. It is living reality. And so when people ask me why the Lord's Supper is so important to me, It's important to me because I think it tells us something about God. It tells us that God doesn't just expect us to remember, to think. He calls us to eat and to drink of Him so that, as the Scriptures tell us today, we receive life. And so, do I confess a real presence of Christ 
in the supper? Yes, I do. What I don't do is try to define it. I don't try to say Christ gives us to us in this way, in a bodily way, or try to explain exactly how much or how little it happens. It doesn't really matter exactly how he does it. But I do think it's important that we recognize he does it. And as we recognize he does it, we recognize that we're being transformed. When I went from a world of symbols to a world of realities, it changed my life of faith because it changed my view of God. It changed what I understood I was receiving, what I received in my baptism, what I received in the Lord's Supper, what I'm actually receiving when I read the scriptures, what's actually happening when I pray. All of a sudden, God was very near to me. If God would make himself so near that I could consume him with my mouth and my lips, how near is he when we pray? How near is he when we read the scriptures? Friends, this is a reality of what God does in us. It is a real presence. Again, not trying to define exactly how he gives us his body and blood, but confessing that when he says at the Lord's Supper in the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, that we simply say amen. And we allow him to define the terms and tell us what we are receiving rather than trying to tell him what we think he is receiving or what he's trying to symbolize. I really think that if you can get that down in the life of faith, it completely upends everything about the way you see the faith. Because I don't know about you, but I know me, I'm not that good a person. I know I'm not that strong. I'm not the person that can will myself to be more holy, to think on holy things to stop thinking about unholy things, to stop activities that I know are unholy. And I bet there are a few of you that could identify with that. I bet there are a few of you that have been told, if you're really a Christian, then you're going to exhibit it in these ways. And then you've thought to yourself, great, how do I get there? And without denying the fact that there are qualities to the Christian faith, that there are personality characteristics, there are ways that we should behave, we always have to be asking the question, how do we get there? And that's what's missing in a world of symbols. God does not work as a symbol. God works as living reality. As often as you would. The the church historically has always confessed some sort of a real presence in the Lord's Supper. And as a result of that, the church has also historically always confessed, as Jesus called them to do, to receive the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis as often as you would. Matter of fact, our history as Wesleyans, John Wesley received the Lord's Supper sometimes four and five times a week. He wrote an entire sermon called The Duty of Constant Communion in order to remind his people that this isn't something that we can cast off to the side and think of in negligible terms. This is central to our life of faith. The church is before it's anything else a sacramental community. Before the church can do anything in the world that makes sense, 
before the church can actually take on the characteristics that are required of us in order to serve the world, we have to become a people of God. And as we become a people of God, then we are prepared to go into the world and serve the world. What happened? What happened to the Lord's Supper? And why did it happen that way? Well, there are two streams. For us, our stream is Anglicanism. One where we've always confessed the real presence. John Wesley was a lifelong Anglican. He believed in the real presence till the day he died. Our hymnal points to the fact that we believe in the real presence. Every single document we have points to the real presence. So why would we let it go the way that we've let it go? Well, we let it go for one very practical reason. There weren't enough priests in the United States when the first Methodists came over. They couldn't ordain enough people. So what would happen is you'd have these circuit riders that would ride around from town to town, once a quarter stopping in each town, giving them the Lord's Supper. It wasn't desirable, but it was necessary. And it became habit. And I think it's a habit that we as a church, not just this church, but I believe all Methodist churches need to look long and hard at and think, is that really what we want to be? Is that really what we're confessing about the Lord's Supper, that it's just something that we kind of tack on once a month or once a quarter? Or are Jesus' words actually something that means something to us, that we should be doing it weekly? Because as we're doing it weekly, we're becoming Christ. We're becoming the people of Christ. Paul put it this way. The cup of blessing that we bless is not is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. As we receive the Lord's supper, we're not just coming forward to receive as individuals. The individuals are becoming one. And as we become one, we are united through the supper. Have you ever thought about that that correlation? This is my body. And then Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ. Have you ever thought about how there's actually an intimacy to that that we sometimes miss through the Lord's Supper, that it's more than just receiving bread and grape juice, that it's actually us becoming something together? What does it mean for Christ in the power of the Spirit to bring us together and to take many and make them one? We are called to be one And the means that God has given us to be one is the Lord's Supper. Now, what does this mean for this church? What it doesn't mean is that I'm going to force down your throats weekly communion. I refuse to do that because I think that obliterates the image of of communion. I do not want to be the person who comes and makes the Lord's Supper a law to people because I don't think it should be a law. I don't want to do something out of bare obedience, though obedience is good. I want us to do something because people see the value of it and say, I need it. We need it as a congregation. And so that's where I leave all of you this morning.
And I'm not going to force it again. This is my, I guess, this is an important one to me, all right? So if I seem a little strong today, it's because it has played such a central role in my life. But I'm just going to leave the congregation with this. If Christ told you to go and feed the hungry, would you feed them? If Christ told you to clothe the poor, would you clothe them? If Christ tells you to pray, would you pray? Well, if Christ tells you, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life in him, would you do that? Is it important? Is it something that we should be striving toward? As the official United Methodist documents point to us, it's actually called um, this holy mystery encouraging Methodist churches to return to weekly communion, recognizing it as a central aspect of who we become and what we do. Is that something that we should do? You know how I feel. I'm not good at hiding that kind of stuff. But I want to leave you with that this morning. Maybe you've never had it presented. I don't know. Maybe you have and you don't think it's a good idea anyway. That's okay. But I want to present to you today that whether we stick with once a month or whether someday in the future we're doing it once a week. Let's never presume that all we're receiving are bread and grape juice. It's more than that. It's always been understood as more than that by the church. It's always been understood as more than that through biblical interpretation. It was only 500 years ago, during the time of the Reformation, in some streams of the Reformation, that that got stripped. By and large, through the history of the church, through the history of our denomination, we have understood that something very, very, very important is happening here and that we are receiving from God the grace that he wants to give us. And so if it feels as though I'm coming down heavy-handed today, I hope it'll feel that way only in this way. Christ conveys grace to us, and that is a blessing And that is the point I want you to walk away with today more than anything else. The Lord's Supper is not something that God hangs over our heads and says, you have to do this or else. The Lord's Supper is something that is given to us as a blessing to the church and allows us to receive the fullness of the life of God in us as we receive it. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day today, and we thank you for the many blessings that you give to us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you for the gift of your scriptures. We thank you for the gift of communication with you, a communication that was restored by the power of Christ on the cross. And we thank you for the gift of your body, your son's precious body and blood. Lord, help us never to think of it as a small thing, as just a liturgical act that we pull out of our hymnals and do out of a sense of obedience. Help us to remember always that it is a wonderful gift that you give to the church and that in so receiving, we do receive the life that is promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.